Today's scripture reading will be in Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Please turn with me in your Bibles or follow along on the screen. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Happy New Year. It is a new year. 2024, to be exact. And the beginning of every new year presents people with a lot of hope. Gyms are flooded this time of year. And maybe, I mean, it's January 7th. They might be abandoned at this point. People want to transform their bodies. There's stringent diets that are taking place right now, and maybe they've been abandoned as well. Bible reading plans were kick-started, at least. And these are all good things. I'm not, I'm not like knocking on these things. These are great. It's good things to do. But uh, my, my, I guess my point really in bringing up those, those things as far as it's connected to a new year is really this, that the beginning of a new year presents people with hope. Hope that bad habits will be broken, good habits formed. Hope that sadness will turn to joy. Hope that anxieties will turn to peace. Hope that things that have been absolutely terrible will become wonderful. Hope that things will improve that could definitely be better. Hope that things will stabilize that have been rocky. Hope that life, which has felt chaotic since November, will begin to slow down, settle down, calm down. And I I personally, I love the beginning of a new year. And it's not because the new year presents me with real hope. It's because the new year presents me with a real opportunity to reflect on the past year. Think about the year ahead. Reflect on God's faithfulness. Rejoice in the things that are worthy of praise. Repent of the things that need sanctification and God's grace and His mercy. It doesn't take many new years before you come to the realization that putting your hope in a new year is silly. It's foolish. It's just not helpful. It's unwise. Trials are going to come this year as will triumphs. Discouraging times will come this year, and there will be some encouraging moments. Tragedy that you had not planned for may come this year. It's a reminder that this is a fallen world that we live in, even though it is a new year. And so the question is, what can we do as a church body as we start this new year together, this Lord's Day? It's a simple answer. It's 
We fix our eyes on our sovereign and good God, on our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. We renew our minds through the Word of God. We sing together. We pray together. We fellowship together. That is the way to start a new year, and that is something we should continue in throughout this year. We are to put our hope not in our circumstances changing this year. We are, as individuals, as families, and as a church community, to put our hope in the unchanging Redeemer, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why it's very appropriate, I think, that we start in the book of Ruth. We're in the Old Testament. We're in Ruth. And Ruth reminds us that God is sovereign over everything and that God is a redeemer. I can't predict your future for this year. I can't tell you that everything is going to be just as you hope. I hope it is, quite frankly. But I can tell you without a hesitation that God is sovereign over every event in human history and ever over every single millisecond of your life, which is described as a vapor. He's sovereign over it all. And I can tell you this, that the central theme of the Bible is redemption. Redemption is what holds the Bible together. It is like the strong binding on the book that we open every Lord's Day. The Bible speaks of redemption that is God's doing. It tells us that mankind ruined the world through sin, but that God graciously redeems his world through the Savior, Jesus Christ. I can't tell you that you will live to see 2025. But I can tell you this. There's real hope for every single one of you who have put their faith, not in a new year, not in a better you, but in the ancient of days, in the Lord of glory, in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. There's real hope in Him. Hope for eternal life. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world, and in him we are victors. In him we are redeemed. What we're looking at this morning as we begin our study in the book of Ruth is the true story of a woman of God named Naomi who experienced incessant trials and tribulations in this world that you and I live in. They were crashing down on this woman wave after wave. It was hard for her to catch her breath for an entire decade. And yet God who maybe seemed to be distant in this time. God, her God, who maybe seemed to be weak in this time. Where's your power in these struggles, in these trials? Her God, who may have seemed to be unsympathetic or completely absent. 
had not forsaken Naomi. And he does not forsake any of his children. He never has. He never will. There is a Redeemer, friends, in the heavens when it appears that there is only ruin on the earth. That's what we're looking at this morning. That's the great hope we have this new year. Look with me at Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. I've entitled this sermon, From Bad to Worse. Verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons, Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This was not the way Naomi had hoped her year would look. This was not the way that Naomi had hoped the next decade of her life would look. But this is the story of Naomi. In verses 1 through 5, things start off bad. They get worse for this family and for this woman in particular. And the first thing I want you to see is it starts off bad is that, number one, there's danger in the land. Look at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The author, who is unknown and is not Ruth, is giving us a backdrop of the setting, the historical context in which this story took place. And it is in the days when the judges ruled. When did the judges rule? Well, it was after God used Moses to redeem Israel out of Egypt, slavery in Egypt. They journeyed through the wilderness. Ultimately, he brought them to the brink of the promised land. And then Moses dies, Joshua, his successor, takes over, and he leads them across the Jordan into the land, and there's a great conquest, not a complete conquest, but a great conquest. And then the Israelites, they, they settle into the land. Then Joshua dies. And there's this period of about 180 years which is the judges' era. It's the, the time in which the judges ruled. And this was from about 1200 B.C. to 1020 B.C. This was after the death of Joshua, and it was leading up to the coronation of the first king of Israel, King Saul. 
These days were notoriously evil and chaotic days. The days that the judges ruled. The way that the book of Judges concludes is in chapter 1, verse 25. It says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what were those days characterized by? They were leaderless and they were lawless. There's no direction So people are going in whatever direction seems and feels best to them. It's very characteristic of even the way most people live in our own nation that we live in today. Doing whatever seems best in your own eyes. Ultimately, we know the scriptures tell us very clearly, and we know it by experience, that there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is death. So we're not to go the way that we think is best. We're to go the way God says is best. According to his word, his will, and as you, if you heard from last week's sermon, his wisdom. These days were characterized by social chaos, spiritual apostasy. People were wandering from God. They were walking away from God. There was violent invasions from foreign nations because under Joshua, they did not completely annihilate the inhabitants in the land. There's a great conquest, again, but not a complete conquest. There's unrestricted crime, tribal civil wars. And and you need to understand that in these days, the nation of Israel was not just experiencing some discomfort. They were in jeopardy of not existing as a nation. They were in jeopardy. This was a survival period without a king and with people going their own way. And there's a a hint of this evil age in chapter 2 of Ruth when both Boaz and Naomi caution Ruth as she goes out into the fields because they know that there's a very great chance that she may experience molestation in those fields by some young men. Dangerous times. The only leaders in this era were temporary, reactionary leaders called judges. They were the ones that God would raise up in response to his people's desperate cry, Help! Things are bad! We're under attack! We have sinned! We are sorry! Please Show us mercy. And he would raise up a judge. This, this was not like judges that we think of. These weren't like court officials. There wasn't anything that organized. These were just individuals who were local military rulers or heroes. They were people that God would raise up, not on a national level, but on a local level. Not in a political way, but in a militia-like, military, fix-the-problem-at-hand kind of way. Mercy. But not even these heroes, not even these judges could prevent a famine. And so not only is it a lawless time, but this is a life-threatening situation. There's a famine in the land. Do you see that? 
in the land. It's, it's referring to Bethlehem and maybe the greater area outside of Bethlehem. The question is what caused this famine? There's other famines that are referred to before this famine, but what caused this one? And to be honest, the, the answer is not explicitly given to us. I, I can't tell you with 100% certainty what it is, but it causes us, the readers, to go, what happened? I mean, was this God's judgment on the people for their wickedness, for their cycles of unrepentant, habitual sin? Maybe. Was it a result of just mismanagement of the land? You didn't take care of it. You didn't steward it. Maybe. Maybe a combo. Maybe it was enemy activity that caused the famine. I'm inclined to believe that that's what caused it. And I'll tell you why. And I'm not alone. There's many scholars who think that this is connected to the Midianite invasion and devastation of the land that's recorded in Judges chapter 6. The Midianites, they oppressed Israel for seven years. Naomi didn't hear about the famine subsiding in the land or ceasing until 10 years in after they had left Bethlehem and sojourned to Moab. So it's very possible that this was a result of the neighboring nation of, of Midian, the Midianites. And uh, it, it makes a lot of sense when, when the scriptures tell us explicitly that the Midianites, uh, part of their, their oppression was the destruction of the produce of the soil. But ultimately, again, I can't say it with 100% certainty because it doesn't tell us with 100% certainty what caused the famine. We can know this with 100% certainty. God was sovereign over the famine. Absolutely sovereign over this disaster. And he used this famine to force this real family to leave their home and sojourn to Moab. And that's, that's my second point. Not only was there danger in the land, but this family is displaced from their home. There's a displacement from home. That's a terrible thing. You don't want to be forced out of your home. But look at verse 1b. It says, And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So the family of four leaves Bethlehem, during the famine, they go to Moab. The irony is that they left a place, Bethlehem, which means in Hebrew, house of bread. Because there, no, there was no bread. There was famine in the land. And they sojourn in Moab. Judah and Moab are not terribly far apart if you look at a map, which again leads me to the hypothesis that this was a Midianite invasion. But again, don't 100% know. But the relationship between Israel and Moab was not good. Moab, the origins of, of that nation is shameful. I mean, I don't, I don't know, there's not another word to describe it. In Genesis 19, we see the beginnings of the nation of Moab. It was right after God rained fire down on Sodom. And Abraham, uh, his nephew, Lot, Lot and his two daughters escape the, the disaster at Sodom. 
The wife turned around when she was told not to. She turns to a pillar of salt. She's gone. And, and so this, this man and his two daughters go into the hill country. They go into a cave and two drunken, incestuous nights later, his daughters conceive babies by their father. Genesis 19.37 says that the firstborn daughter of Lot bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. Later on, the Moabites refused to allow the Israelites to pass through their territory when they were on their way from Egypt into the Promised Land. That was a bad decision by the Moabites. Israel formed a constitution that excluded the Moabites from the assembly of the Lord. We see that in Deuteronomy 23. I'm going to read this to you. It says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Why? Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Baor, from Pathor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. And it just keeps getting worse. Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3 record that the Moabite women seduced the young Israelite men, and they passively intermarried, they were unequally yoked, and they embraced their pagan customs, they embraced their false gods. They embraced Baal worship. Judges 3, verse 15 through 30 records that there was recent oppression of the Israelites by Eglon, who was the king of Moab. I mean, I'm sure there's more I could share with you, but what I'm trying to get across is that Israelites, Moabites aren't buddy-buddy. They're, fr- they're not friends. They're enemies. So, Elimelech, the patriarch, the husband, the father, the leader of his home, is in a famine situation, and he has to make a big decision. Are we going to stay and pray and hope that God feeds us with bread in the house of bread, that there is no bread right now? And are we going to go to Moab or not? What are we going to do here? He makes the decision to go to Moab. Travel would have been very dangerous. It's the judge's era. The destination's unfavorable. It's Moab. And finding acceptance as Israelites in Moab ain't easy. It's a big decision. But when we step back from this one situation and this one decision that this guy had to make, and we think about with the treasure trove of being having the ability to look at the whole canon of Scripture in a book in our hands today. We can look in retrospect and go, God did some amazing things through famines in the past leading up to this famine. God used even famines in His sovereignty to advance His purposes in this world. Abraham, Isaac, 
Jacob, all forced to sojourn during a famine in the land. So this family's in good company with the patriarchs. Look with me at verse 2. Let's look at the names of these family members briefly. It says the name of the man was Elimelech. Eli Melech, that means my God is king. Elimelech's name, it, it hints at the major theme of Ruth, which is God is king who sovereignly guides all events in history towards a cosmic redemption in Christ. Though this man is named my God is king, Elimelech, He's forced to flee his king's territory because of the famine. And it causes the reader, it causes us to ask an honest question. Is your God king? Is your name true? Is your God sovereign king? Is he a good king, Elimelech? Now we know that he is. And today, again, we, we get to look back at the cross, the fulfillment of the promise that they were looking forward to. We look at, we know, hey, look, there could be some terrible things that happen in my life and yours, but no one can question the goodness of God. He has demonstrated for us very clearly at the cross of Calvary. But man, it's a tough situation. The name of his wife is Naomi, and that's, uh, that name means pleasant or lovely, it's interesting. Later on, because of the great tragedies that she experiences, she says, don't call me that, please. Just call me bitter. Call me Mara. The Lord has dealt, dealt harshly with me. The names of his two sons, Malon and Kilion. Malon means the weakly, Kilion pining. But even those names, it's not totally clear what those mean exactly. The exact meaning is, is a little uncertain. But they, they, this family, they're Ephrathites. That is certain. And, and the author's made that, he, he has put that in here. He could have just said they're from Bethlehem, but he says they're Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They're not just Judites. They're not just from Judah. They're, they're Ephrathites. Ephrathites, is, it's specifying the clan within the tribe of Judah that this family belonged to. And based on other passages in the Old Testament, it's very likely that this clan, Ephrathites, descended from Caleb, who is one of the two spies who brought back a good report to Moses. But if they did descend from Caleb, and I think they did, based on cross-references, the author is mentioning that they're Ephrathites to make this tragedy even worse. They would have been like an aristocratic family as Ephrathites. They, they would have been like one of the first families of Bethlehem. And so to, to, to paint this in a picture that you can understand, it would be like if the Vanderbilts were stripped of all their wealth and were poor peasants in a field. That, that's the height at which this family would have fallen if they were from that line and if they really were an aristocratic family at this, this point. And so there's danger in the land, friends. There's displacement from this family's home, and it gets worse because once they sojourn and they arrive to Moab, there's death in the family. This is my third point. Look at verse 3. 
But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And it's, it's interesting to me because it, the way that the author speaks of death here is just kind of matter of fact. And, and I think we need to like let it settle in. That this woman's husband died. Her sons lost their father. These are scary dangerous times. You need to put your, you need to step into Naomi's shoes or you're going to miss the rest of Ruth. You're just not going to appreciate it the way that you're intended to. She's been forced to travel. She has been stripped from all comfort, from all family, anything that was familiar in Bethlehem. And now her husband dies, love of her life, her companion, her friend, her leader, her provider, her protector. He's dead. It's devastating. She's a widow. And Elimelech's death, it causes us to ask more questions that the text just doesn't give answers to. Why did he die? Was, was his death connected to him leaving Bethlehem? Was he wrong in leaving Bethlehem? Was this a bad decision? The author began by saying in verse 1 that they went to sojourn in the country of Moab, which is a temporary thing. But then he concludes and says they went into the country of Moab and remained there, which seems more permanent. Seems like maybe Elimelech was thinking, you know what, maybe we'll stay here after all. So you got to ask, is this God's judgment on him for leaving or for staying in Moab? We don't know. But if it's not God's judgment on him for that, then the other human questions and cries come out, which are these. Why can't God, the king, keep his people alive in a foreign land? Is he weak? Is he really king? Do you really run things? These are human questions. These are things that may or may not have been coming into the minds of his family as they lost the head of the household. If you're Naomi, it might not feel like God's in control in these moments. It might not feel like God's good. Why all of this? And maybe you have had moments like Naomi in your own life where, where you're going, God, why? There's a, there's a little flicker of hope in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Naomi's sons get married. It says, These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Orpah's name means nape of the neck. It suggests a turning back, potentially. Still a little uncertain. Still a little bit of conjecture there. It may be linked to the fact that Orpah was the one of the two sisters who ultimately did turn back when Naomi made the journey back to Bethlehem. It's conjecture. Ruth, the name Ruth, it sounds very similar to the word for friendship in Hebrew, but the spelling's a little different, so that's a little inconclusive as well. What's not uncertain, again, these are real women. 
This is a real story. This is a historical account. This is a real widow in Naomi. I mean, Ruth's name is in more than one genealogy in the Bible. I just don't want us to move past the fact that this is not fiction. It's real people that are really suffering in a fallen world that you and I suffer in. So when husband like Elimelech dies, it's devastating for her whole family. But the flicker of hope was that, well, my boys are getting married and maybe I'll be a grandmother. Maybe. But even that hope stripped away. Because it says that they lived there for about 10 years, but then her sons die. Look at verse 5. Both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So Naomi is completely and utterly alone. In a lawless world. In an evil time. Not only has she lost her husband, she's lost her boys. Not only has she lost her sons, she's lost the prospect of being a grandmother and being able to care for and hold grandbabies. She's lost all this and more because the author says that she's almost lost a sense of identity. It says, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. It doesn't even say her name, just the woman was left. Loneliness is just one painful aspect of this tragic situation. Naomi is older. She's been impoverished due to the situation. And so that's basically sealed off the four options that would have been there otherwise. Her parents are likely dead. She can't go back to her dad's house. Remarriage is very unlikely. She's past childbearing years. She can't support herself by trade because she likely had none. She was, main vocation was in the home. There's likely zero resources at this time during the judges' era in Moab for widows, especially for Israelite widows. I mean, this is as bleak of a situation as it gets for an individual. Five verses, ten years, complete disaster. Things went from bad to worse. Naomi's future seems utterly hopeless. And unless we settle in and think about her situation and mourn with her, we will not understand or appreciate the redemption that God has for Naomi as we continue in this story. We will not be able to appreciate or empathize or sympathize with her laments later on in this book when she says that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty 
the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. God had orchestrated these events in such a way that if Naomi somehow obtains offspring against such impossible odds, it would be a miracle. It would very clearly be the hand of God. Naomi is at the mercy of God. And fortunately, God is merciful. God is a redeemer. Here we are, five verses in. All seems lost. And then verse 6. God reminds Naomi of his presence and his power and his promise to provide for his children. In verse 6, it says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. That's happening in Bethlehem. When did she hear about this grace and this mercy from God? When this woman stepped out in faith in her old age as a widow, as someone who's lost her children, as someone who's alone in a dangerous world, dangerous fields, and she goes out to try to make ends meet to eat food. And God proclaims a gospel through pagan Moabites in this field that he has returned to the fields in Bethlehem. And there's food there for Naomi. There's hope there for Naomi. She can go home now. What a grace. What a mercy to this woman. What a redeemer. We don't get to pick and choose when or how God redeems the brokenness in our lives. I wish we did. I'd say right now, right away, and in all these ways, but we don't get to pick and choose. But He's good, and He's sovereign, and He's a redeemer over your life and mine. And we get the opportunity in trials just like the ones Naomi was facing, to turn to God in faith and trust that in Christ He can and He will redeem the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. Who will you turn to this year if things go from bad to worse? Let it be Jesus Christ. When your hope and mine is in Jesus Christ, we can endure the trials knowing that on the horizon there is hope, there is redemption. In Christ we know we deserve death and yet he promises eternal life. Therefore, circumstances this year don't have to dictate your joy or mine as believers. God's grace can do that. God is writing a story for you 
Every single one of you. He is writing a story. And, and you don't get to choose how each scene or chapter of this story plays out. But in each and every chapter of your life and mine, we get to trust in the same God of the Bible that Naomi was putting hope in. We get to trust in the author of our life and the perfecter of our faith, the one who is making us in and through all things more like his son, having saved us by his son. I'm going to conclude this morning by reading a poem to you that was written in a very hostile time. It was during World War II when Nazis were destroying Jews left and right. It was a poem written by Corey Ten Boom. She was a Christian woman that God used to preserve the lives of hundreds of Jews from being arrested and executed by Nazis. My mother shared this poem with me. When I, like Naomi, was in the darkest, most disturbing and despairing seasons of my life, I was hopeless. I didn't see, I didn't see how I could put one foot forward. And maybe that's you this morning, or maybe that's just been you, or maybe that will be you this year. She shared this poem with me, my mom, because I was desperate for real hope. I was desperate. I needed someone to help me get my eyes on a God who has real hope, who can offer real hope, redemption. The poem's been called The Tapestry Poem but it's entitled Life is But a Weaving. I just want you to listen to this. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oftentimes he weaveth sorrow. And I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I, the underside, not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly, will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned, he knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. The cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is what we have to keep our eyes on in every trial, in every tribulation, in every tragedy. God is sovereign. God is a redeemer. And he is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. The whole creation 
including you and I, are groaning for that day when he comes. No more sorrow, no more, no more pain, no more death ever again. And friends, that day is coming. And today we're one day closer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being compassionate towards us. Jesus, we love you. We're so grateful that you can truly empathize with us. You understand the great sorrow and the pain of living in this fallen world. You hate death and you have destroyed death through your cross and resurrection. You give us hope of life, eternal life. We thank you our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Help us hide in you as we await your coming. Thank you, Jesus, for your promise to wipe away every tear that falls from our eyes. Thank you for the real hope that you offer in a world that's full of so many false hopes. real hope that when you come and you're coming, you are not a liar. We trust that you're coming. When you come, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Until that day, help us in our mourning and with tears to continue rejoicing in your redemption that you have accomplished at the cross. Whether things go from bad to worse or not, keep our hope anchored in you. Amen.